0: All right, we're going to start. Take your Bibles and turn. We're in Mark chapter 4, and um, we're going to go through the first of Jesus' parables today. And uh, it's the parable of the sower, and uh, I think you'll recognize it. So Mark chapter 4, verse 1 and 2 says, And again he, he began to teach beside the sea. And a very large crowd gathered about him, so they got into a boat and sat into it, sat in it on the sea, and the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land. And he was teaching them many things in parables, and in his teaching he said to them, "Now before we go on, I want to just freeze there for a second and just kind of get the picture in your mind. Here's a fairly uh, normal predicament or circumstance for Jesus. Uh, the crowds are so large that he has to get into a boat and teach them so he doesn't get crushed by them. So he's probably out on the water about 30 feet or so, which would be about from me to the sound booth. So if you think about that far, if you think if you're standing on the beach and and looking that distance. And uh, and I, I just want us to think this morning for just a second. Wouldn't it have been amazing to be there? I mean, just imagine, transport yourself to the Sea of Galilee and you're on the beach. Can you imagine actually listening to Jesus tell this story, this parable, straining to hear what he's saying, hoping uh, he will notice you, right? Pick you out of the crowd kind of thing. Uh, Hoping that he might heal you or speak a kind word to you. By now the word is shot out. It's gone far and wide, right? Jesus is a hot topic. The grapevine is working overtime and it's just uh, gone wild. And so people are all over. So just imagine one of those sunlit mornings, the waves are gently rocking. We just came from the Oregon coast, so I've got beach on my mind, right? And and there's a boat out there, right? And, and you're standing on the shore and the, the place is just thronged with people. You can imagine the buzz and stuff till it all s- quiets down. And just imagine thousands of people not saying a word, listening, straining for every word that Jesus says. I just think that would be spectacular to be there. Uh, like I mentioned, they they had heard the stories. You know, they heard the stories of the healings. They heard the stories of the casting out of demons. They heard the story of the man with the withered hand. And so there was great expectation uh, in the crowd. And in this context, Jesus is now going to begin with a, a form of teaching that he's going to use, which we recognize now as parables. Uh, you could also call them riddles, right? Uh, and, uh, and he... he teaches in this form, and he begins with this one, and it's called the parable of the sower. And let's begin. So he says this, Listen, behold, a sower went out to sow. Now, here's the problem with this, all right? And I'm sure you've anticipated that This parable parable has been preached uh, to the point where it's hard to add anything new to it. All right? I mean, and you probably sit there today, he didn't say that, he didn't cover this. Well, I've heard this before. Well, the Greek says that. Okay? Stick it in your ear. All right? <laughs> you know how hard it is to come up with new stuff for this kind of stuff? All right? But, and I say that in great humor, don't take offense. All right? Let's have some fun here. But, uh, you know, part of the problem is we could get a place where I've heard this before so I don't have to pay attention. Don't make that mistake this morning. Let me give you, let me give you three years, uh, three reasons why not. over, my years of knowing the Lord and, and knowing His Word, uh, uh, I've come to realize that when one hits a place like this, a very familiar place in Scripture where you can almost re- recite the story verbatim, right? When you hit a place like that, that's when we should slow down and take notice for a couple of reasons. Reason number one, the Holy Spirit is always able to reveal new insights. I don't care how much you know or how long you've known the Lord or how much you've been in the Word, The Holy Spirit can always pull out gems or jewels that you never have seen before. And so often it's in the place you're most familiar with that He often surprises you. So that would be the first reason. The second reason is it never hurts to be reminded of truths we already know. If you think about church, what is church really doing? Rehearsing what we already know we're supposed to do, right? Or supposed to be. And and we get reminded, oh, I forgot that. I quit doing that. I got to do that again. And the third reason is, that you aren't the same person today that you were a year ago or three years ago or five years ago or 10 years ago or some of us 40 years ago. Right? You've changed. And in that changing, your circumstances have changed. And so there was a certain way you've heard this before and then your circumstances change. It's amazing how as your circumstances change, as you've gained what we would call life experience, you come at something like this and all of a sudden you see another layer to it you hadn't seen before. And it's simply because you are now able to look at it with what scripture would call new eyes, right? And so for those reasons, uh, I, th- I thought it'd be really good. Let's just stop and pray and ask God to reveal something to us this morning, either by way of something new or by a way of reminder that would uh, be an encouragement for us. So will you join me? Father, as we come this morning, we're very, we recognize we're really dependent, on your Holy Spirit to break through and understand truths that we uh, either have known and forgotten, or need to be reminded of, or haven't seen before. And uh, Lord, often you shock us with some of those aha experiences in Scripture. And as we come today, with a very familiar parable, Lord. One, uh, uh, your first one, brilliant, brilliant story. Help us. Be at work with us. And we ask this in great hope in your name. Amen. All right. Okay, okay so often, uh, when I want to point one other thing out. Often when this parable is preached or, uh, and you hear, the emphasis is placed on the soils. And we'll, we'll talk about the soils today and, and go into that. But I want you to notice that that's not how the parable starts. How does the parable start? It starts out from the perspective of the sower. Behold, the sower went out to sow. In other words, there is someone who is planting. Uh, sower, our language, we call him a farmer, right? A sower or a farmer uh, who's sowing seed. And there's four things about this that I think get overlooked. So let me point them out to you. First of all, the sower or the farmer has determined that it's the right time to sow a seed. You know, if you're a farmer, you don't always sow seed, right? There's a time in spring coming up right now. This is called planting season. If you grew up on a farm, you know that. It's planting season. You run your rhythms by that. But you don't always plant. In summer, the crops grow. In fall, you harvest them. In winter, the land lies fallow, and uh, you either disc it or plow it, and then it lies. And then you come back around to spring. So in other words, you don't always plant. And so in here... The sower has determined it's the right time to sow the seed. Second thing is that there's such a thing as seed, which can be sown. Have you ever stopped to think how miraculous seeds are? I don't care if it's an apple seed or orange seed or seeds you plant or they seeds are an amazing thing, right? They're just this is dried up, withered, crumpled thing, and if you looked at the thing, you'd never think there's life in that little deal at all. But put it in the ground, put some water, and this amazing plant emerges out of that. And we forget what a miracle that is. You know, we just take it for granted. It's springtime, all the flowers are come out and go, oh, yeah, that's awesome. Isn't that cool? And we forget that that actually tells us of the handiwork of God, that there is such a thing as seed. Jesus is the seed of Abraham, all right? And he uses that analogy, and it's a miraculous analogy, because he's talking about the incredible miracle God has put within this thing we call seed that we live by all the time, but we hardly ever give it credit. Or um, Both Jesus and Paul use this illustration of the new spiritual life that God creates in a person, this, this seed that God plants, right? And how the seed doesn't look like anything of what it will become, right? And Paul says that in the resurrection, we're just seeds right now. We're going to look very different in our resurrection bodies. And it's going to become something different, That the miracle of seed. Third, all seed does not fall on the same conditions. The soil it lands on determines its productivity. And we'll see that in the parable. Not all seed gets the same opportunity. And then the fourth thing, all soil is not the same. And neither are human hearts. You know, remember, I think it's important to remember, you say, why should we pray for Sunday? It kind of goes the way it's supposed to all the time. And I know you guys meet up in the room up there and you pray, but, uh, you know, I don't know what difference it makes. Here's the difference it makes. No one knows the human heart. When you walk in this morning, I couldn't tell you if you had a good week or a bad week, unless it's incredibly obvious, Right? I can't tell if you're close to the Lord or far from the Lord. I can't tell if you're fighting him or you're on his team. I can't tell if you're close or distant. I mean, I I don't know if you sinned this week or you chose obedience. I don't know any of that stuff. But God knows, right? And so when we come on Sunday, God is watching the heart. He's watching what's going on inside of us, not what goes on the outside of us. And we know we're really good at posturing, right? Hi, how are you? Fine, right? We're really good at that as humans. But just remember that God sees the inside there and uh, all soil's not the same and neither are the hearts that are here this morning. Some of us have had great weeks. We're happy. We're full of hope. It's good. We're we're liking it. Some of us have had terrible weeks. It's been awful. We're wondering if we're going to make it through next week. Some of us have had very disconnected, boring weeks. We're like, whew, right? And some of us have had very engaged weeks, like maybe even too engaged, like, wow, I I could take a break, you know? And so there's all these different levels that are going on at the same time. So everything that follows that we're going to talk about today has to be seen in light of cooperating with God's grace. So let's get on with the parable and take a look at it. Here it goes. sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured it. Other seed fell on rocky ground where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. So the sower, the farmer, in those days, they didn't have machinery. Uh, When I grew up as a kid, we had machines that would do the planting of the seed. But in those days it was by the what's called the broadcast method. And you've seen pictures of this, right? A guy would have a big sack on his shoulder, he'd take hands and right? Just take a step. And he he would just broadcast that seed. And when they got really good at it, they were incredibly effective in, in casting the seed out and just very little overlap and it would go pretty much exactly where they wanted it to go and very evenly. That's a big secret in planting seeds. It has to be even. If you dump a whole pile on the ground, not much is going to come out of that. So uh, they did the, the broadcast method. They had to do it by hand. And so Jesus is talking about this and, uh, and he's saying that as he's sowing, some, a small portion lands on the path. Okay, now let's give the sower some credit, or the farmer. He's not just dumping seed on the path, right? He doesn't look at the pavement and go, here, I hope you turn into a harvest. No, 95% of all the seed that the sower plants is in the good ground, is in the field. But some of it is going to go in a few places that aren't as productive. We're going to see today that some of it goes on the good soil, some of it goes on the hard path, Some of it goes in the rocky soil and some of it is going to go into the thorns and the weeds uh, where it's going to have competition and it's not going to produce much. So the sower, though, is wise and he knows how to get full coverage. And so there has to be a little overlap, which is where Jesus gets the illustration from. So some of the seed here falls on the path. It's right in plain sight. It's hard, impenetrable ground. There's no way for that seed to get into the soil there. And so the birds uh, see it, and they go, yippee, lunch. Right? Because it's very obvious as the birds fly over, they can see it on the ground. They stop. You ever see birds do that? Boy, they stop, pick, 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 pick right? They just they just go after that stuff. And so it's quickly uh, taken away. Other seed falls on the rocky ground. Usually, the rocky ground will run right alongside the the field uh on next to the good ground or there will be a patch out in the middle of the field that is rocky and uh, the good ground will be around it. Um, you've probably seen places like that. So if it rains, the seed can sprout quickly, but it doesn't have any real soil to nurture it. And so it withers just as fast. Then Jesus goes on to describe two more. Other seed fell among the thorns and the thorns grew up, choked it, and it yielded no grain. And other seed fell into the good soil and it produced grain, growing up and increasing and yielding 30-fold, 60-fold, and 100-fold. And he, and he said, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. So thorns or weeds uh, compete with the seed. They battle for the nutrients, the rain, the sunshine. Obviously, they make it difficult for the seed to flourish. And then there's the good ground that... It, it, that Jesus describes here. And Jesus uses this saying, and he who has ears to hear, let him hear. He's pointing out something that the meaning is not totally obvious. He's speaking in parables. You have to pay attention. You have to take and and think it through with them. And the implication here is that some would and could and others wouldn't and couldn't. All right? And it all depended on the state of the soil. And we see this explanation in, in the parable when the disciples come to him. The disciples come to him and he says, When he was alone, which was hardly ever, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parables. And he said to them, To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God, but for those outside, everything is in parables, so that they may indeed see, but not perceive, they may indeed hear, but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. Now, first thing, notice that there's more than just the 12. In other places in Scripture, uh, it said there's, there could be as many as 120 of them. There's, so there's a whole group around, not just the disciples. And uh, and so they're around and they're saying, hey, what were you talking about out there on the boat? We didn't get it. And so Jesus explains, that he says, the secret... Uh, in the Greek, that would be mysterium, all right? So we get from the word mysterium, we get what word? Mystery, right? The mystery, the secret of the kingdom of God has been given to you. What was the secret? They understood the secret that Jesus was the Messiah. Jesus was the secret. And because they knew that, they had an into to an insight on the kingdom that other people didn't have. And Jesus says, so... the." To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. But for those outside, everything is in parables. But notice even they needed an explanation, right? The saying here that Mark records, uh, taken from Peter's sermon, this is actually pulled from the book of Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah. And let's look at Isaiah for a second because it's worded a little differently. Isaiah is talking, and the Lord is saying, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull, and their ears heavy, and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. Okay, now this was spoken by Isaiah at a time when, uh, in Israel's history, where they had turned away from God. They had turned to other gods and they said, we, we're done with you. We, we don't want to serve or worship you anymore. We like these other things. They're, they're much more interesting, intriguing, and we think they're better gods than you. Basically, they didn't like the way God did stuff. And so they look for another option. Scripture uh, in the New Testament says they, they look for someone to tickle their ears. That's an interesting phrase. Looking for somebody to tickle. Their ears. In other words, they wanted something to scintillate them. They wanted, uh, we would use the term, entertain them. Right? They wanted something to tickle their ears. We'll come back to that idea in just a second. So Isaiah is talking about a period in Israel. Because a lot of people go, see? See? God's not fair. See? God's crooked. See? God doesn't have character. God's not righteous or just because God, God made them blind. He turned them away. But what they forget is, God had reached out to them for a hundred, couple hundred years, more than a hundred years, almost like 500 years, asking them to turn and come back. And, and they wouldn't. And says, all right, well then, quit listening because you, not, you're not going to get it. Likewise, Jesus was using this to refer to his era. We already saw in Mark that a lot of people were instantly bent against him. Didn't matter what he said. They didn't listen to him. They ruled him out right at the beginning. And they said, not, nah, we don't buy into you at all. And, and so Jesus uses this parable about his era. And I also want to suggest that this applies to our era. We live in a culture that is done with God, has said, um, you know, oh, Jesus, please, that's so yesterday. We're so past that. Have you heard people say that, right? So past that. Um, What's interesting about that is, although people say that, um, that they're done with him, they're really quick to point out that it's wrong of him to say something like this. So we've written God off, we told him we don't want anything to do with him as a culture, and we shut him aside, but you can't say this, because we will determine if we're in or not, and we're determined that you know, you're know, love, and because you're love, you have to love everybody, and because you have to love everybody, we all get in. And how you hear it postured today is My God is a God of love, He would never cast anybody into hell. Well, it's true that Jesus is love. As a matter of fact, Jesus is God's mirror for us, Jesus is God's expression of His love to us. But you can't just take one attribute of God and isolate it or it becomes ridiculous. Jesus does love, but Jesus is also the God of justice. And you have to tie those two things together, along with several other tied together, for the balance of the person who he is and what he is. So people waggle their heads. Jesus would have never said anything like this because it isn't loving. And I want to suggest to you, Jesus knew from the beginning who was against him. He knew who his enemies were. And he reached out to them, but he also knew it was probably likely that they weren't going to listen. And that's where this text from Isaiah gets reworked into Mark. Um, they say because Jesus is all about love, uh, this must be an interjection or a redaction by Mark or Peter. They, they put that in after because Jesus would have never included that. And what they're really saying is that they will determine what Jesus could or would have said. Talk about reading your own bias into the text, right? And they're not even reading the text, which is even more amazing, right? So we we have that going on in our culture. Um, The Isaiah passage, notice the Isaiah passage emphasizes healing. You can see that up here at the end, that they would turn and be healed. The Mark passage says that they would turn and be forgiven, right? Um, On that. What I want to suggest to you is that both are unavailable to those who reject Jesus. Both healing and forgiveness are unavailable to those who reject Jesus. And so he knew this. And so he spoke in parables. He spoke in riddles. He spoke in stories that um, got people uh, guessing. Uh, We do this. Have you ever played the game 21 Questions? Right? And 21 Questions is someone has a riddle and they tell you the riddle. And then you have 21 questions to see if you can solve the riddle in 21 questions. So there's an old one that goes like this. If he had seen the sawdust, he wouldn't have committed suicide. Right? And then if I throw that out, then uh, Wendy could say, was it this? And we well, was he doing this? Or was it related to his job? And you'd get 21 chances to try and see if you could figure out the riddle. Right? I'll just leave that one in your head for a while. And now you know how the people felt when Jesus talked to them. All right? There's also a technical debate going on here uh, that you don't know about. That um, Jesus, this is an allegory. This, this parable is an allegory. And uh, the saying goes that Jesus never used allegory, so it couldn't have been from Jesus. When the truth, there's no word that says Jesus never used allegory. He didn't use allegory in all his parables. He just happened to use allegory in this parable. So the early church took this allegory method and turned it into everything was an allegory, which is way too far on one side. But when you say he never used allegory, you take it way too far on the other side. Jesus did use allegory. He just didn't always use allegory. And so... um, you may not think that's a big thing, and I realize that's a technical point and a church history point and a theologian's point, but it's a big deal in theological circles. So I thought I'd just bring it up for those of you who like that kind of stuff, all right? But in his first parable, he does this, and the meaning is quite clear. So they're talking, and he says this: "Do you not understand this parable? How then are you going to understand all the parables? or all the other parables that I'm going to say. In other words, this has just begun. This is the first one. I'm going to tell a lot of these things. If you don't get this one, how in the world are you going to get the rest of them? I kind of take fact in this, that the disciples who were with Jesus and were on the inner circle uh, kind of didn't get it, didn't have a clue. Uh, That gives me hope, right? There's hope for us. They, They didn't get it either. So if we... You ever kind of wondered what the Lord's doing in your life and you don't really get it? All right, well... They, they had the same problem. So they had to think, figure it out, so will we. But clearly what Jesus is doing here is he's letting them in on something, saying, look, pay attention. Pay attention. You ever drift in church, right? And all of a sudden you're somewhere else in the mess and you go, uh, what's he talking about? right? That's really easy to do because you do realize our attention spans are dropping, right? Uh, now they say on, uh, if you go on Google or if you go on MSN or anything like that now, uh, any article longer than a page and a half, nobody reads it or very few people read it because the attention span is short and they'll read the title, they'll read the first paragraph, got it, and they'll switch and jump to another thing. And so we, we, we don't pay attention the way we used to. Our, our, our bandwidth is shrinking because of the way information is presented. So Jesus is here challenging them to pay attention. He was also including in that he's going to be using this throughout his ministry, so they might as well get used to it. And so he begins, and he explains it to them this way. He says to them, the sower sows the word. Now, clearly here, Jesus is the sower, right? He's the one, he's the seed of Abraham. He's come to sow the word of God, and he's talking about his ministry, and he's talking about the impact of his ministry and where the seed will drop on different kinds of soil, as he is uh, ministering. And he says, And these are the ones, the ones along the hard path, these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. And when they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. So now he's going to describe the effects of the soils that the soils have on the seed that he's sowing. And the seed lands on all of them, but they don't all have the same effect. And again, it's the same with human hearts. God's word does not have the same impact or effect on every human heart. It differs. So the path is the ground that's impacted. It's, it's impenetrable. The seed lays on the top and is not able to go in the ground. And it's easy pickings for the birds because it's visible. You ever see, like, uh, if you go along uh, the Snohomish Trail or anything like that, and somebody throws seed in the ground, what do the birds do? Right? They just, they're going, hey, lunch, this is awesome. And so they just, it's gone before it really is there for any length of time. Jesus' peril to say, this is exactly what it's like when I speak a word into somebody's life, but it can't penetrate. And then Satan comes and steals it away before it ever gets a chance to even germinate. It's its stolen before it begins. And Jesus says there's hearts like that. There are hearts that are hard. And they're, they're, they're rock solid. And my word really can't, penetrate much into them. Next is the rocky ground. There's soil, but also a lot of rocks. So the seed is shallow, springs up quickly, then also withers because it doesn't have any root. So in heat or trouble, Jesus said here, tribulation or persecution, they they quickly fall away. Then he goes on, and then the other ones are sown among the thorns. There are those who hear the word. These are, they are those, sorry, who hear the word but the cares of the world the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word and it proves unfruitful but those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word accept it bear fruit thirtyfold sixtyfold and a hundredfold in other words a great harvest so the third one is the thorns the word is embedded in them but Jesus says the cares of this world The deceitfulness of riches and the desire for other things choke it out and it can't reach maturity. It doesn't produce anything. I was thinking about those three things that Jesus described here. Uh, The cares of this world. Any of you ever get burdened down with the cares of this world? The cares of your life? You ever get tangled up and wrapped in it and you can't see yourself out the other side? Uh, I would say that's pretty universal and happens more often than not. We call it what? Worry. Anybody ever worried in here? No. What an amazing <laughs> church. That must be the church down the street, right? They were. Now we worry, don't we? Right. The cares of this world can really pile up and actually uh, blind us to the things of the kingdom. How about the deceitfulness of, deceitfulness of riches? You know, Lord, if boy, if I won the lottery, the things I could do for you. Right? If you just made me rich, then I could really accomplish something. I think, I think all of us can get locked in on that one. And then the third one, the desires for other things enter in. And I, I want to call this one entertainment. I was thinking about this. I was thinking about how entertainment has changed from when I was a kid to now. Uh, when I was a kid, mom would throw us outside and we had a stick or a bat or a ball uh, or we'd invent something and we, were, we had to play out all afternoon because uh, for the simple reason mom wouldn't let us back in the house. Okay? And so we had to invent things and she didn't care if we were bored. If we were bored too bad, get over it. Think of something. And so we'd invent games and we'd, invent, we'd build forts. And some of you are laughing because you recognize it, right? We'd build forts and we'd do all kinds of crazy things uh, because we had to use our mind to get engaged to entertain ourselves. That's very, very different than entertainment. We live in an entertainment culture. Matter of fact, if you think about it, almost everything around is designed to entertain us. Sports entertain us. Movies entertain us. Internet entertain us. Even so far as like food is an entertainment. Or drinks are an entertainment. In other words, we live in an, an entertainment-saturated culture. And it's so easy to think that the goal of life is to be entertained. Not to be involved in the kingdom. And the kingdom can quickly go away simply because we're too busy being entertained to notice anything about the kingdom. We now, you know, you you can be entertained 24-7, 365. Right? It, It never stops. And so we can live. The problem with entertainment, it's just like anything else that the world promises. It's like drinking salt water. The more you drink it, the thirstier you get. Right? The more, it's interesting, the more you're entertained, the more bored you get. And you always have to have uh, the next high or the next hit, right? Okay, I did these things. We did this on vacation. Now we got to do this. Well, then we did that last year. Well, we got to do this. you always got to one-up it, right? And it becomes an incredible pressure to create that feeling that you first had when you were first entertained. And Jesus is saying, no, you, you need to stay focused. That's the thorns that grow up that steal away the vision of being part of the kingdom of God. Okay, now here's the good news. There is good soil. Jesus talks about it. They hear the, They accept the word. They hear the word. They accept the word. It bears fruit. And Jesus says, it doesn't just bear fruit, but it bears it abundantly. So I'm going to ask the guys if you'd come forward and begin to service communion at this point. If you'd do that, that'd be great. And while they're doing that, and communion comes around, I'd like you to think about this question this morning. When it comes to the four types of soil, what type of soil are you this morning? We're talking about the condition of your heart. What type of soil are you? Are you the hard, impacted soil that the seed can't penetrate? Are you the rocky soil? It sprung up once quick in life, but now it's faded and drawn off and everything else is important. Are you the thorn, thorny soil where it's getting choked out and is isn't bearing any fruit? Or are you the good soil? Probably the better way to ask that question this morning is to ask the Holy Spirit what kind of soul you are. Because I know how we think and how self-deprecating we are and how we our self-talk is and we'll just chew ourselves apart. So maybe the better way to say is, Holy Spirit, out of those four, which one am I most clearly? Right? Thank you, Phil. By the way, You can see all of these soils right here in our area. We went out the other night. uh, We were going to Rich and Wendy's for our prayer group, and we cut across the Snohomish Valley, right? You know that area out there. And I was thinking about this parable, and I I looked, and there over as you pass the mini putt-putt golf course place on the right-hand side is that big farm, and there was the compacted path, and there was the rocky soil, and there was the good soil, and then over on the other side was all the weeds and the thorns. Out here we call them blackberries right? They were all there and I went, wow, that it's right there. That's what it looks like. And so I was going to take a picture, but we drove by and it's hard to take a picture while you're driving. So I, I wasn't able to do it, but you can, you can see it. So if you're, let me give you some, um, so I come from a farming background. Let me give you some farming tips on soil, all right, this morning. If you're hard soil this morning, Do you know that hard soil can be broken up? That many places uh, back in the Midwest that would have been considered unfarmable soil because it was hard-packed can be be broken up? What has to happen is it it has to be plowed. Often, not with a tractor or conventional plows as we know it, but often a big caterpillar will come through with that big hook on the end of it, and that thing will come through, and they'll just bust it all up. And... um, and they will work that land. Now, when you get into Wisconsin, um, the, the, you, we have what's called red clay. Red, uh, You've heard of red Georgia clay. Wisconsin has the same stuff. It's the same kind of clay that you had in pottery class. Remember that stuff in pottery class? Uh, remember how slippery and slimy it was? Remember how you could mold it, but also it was tough to work with half the time? Okay, we had fields of that stuff like and if you dump water in it water wouldn't penetrate It'd just run off the top and cause flooding and it would hit and if you walked out in it you would slip on your butt and then you'd pick up like 10 pounds of mud on each shoe trying to you couldn't walk anymore like you look like frankenstein trying to walk through the, the field and that stuff was miserable it wasn't very good land for farming at all but what you could do with that stuff And what the farmers did is when they first moved there, they cleared the land of all the trees and they saw that clay soil. So what they do is after fall, after harvest, they would go and get the manure spreader. And they would take the manure spreader, fill it with manure, and they would take it and spread it all over the field, really thick. And then when it came to spring, they'd work that, manure into the soil. And what would originally been clay now started to have organic matter into it and it started to become and if you did that for year after year after year after year, it became this really rich loam soil that was absolutely fantastic for growing crops. Okay? And that is such a great illustration for our lives. See because half the time we're like that clay. Our hearts aren't really penetrable And God wants to make it penetrable, so God knows He has to spread some manure on us. We say in our culture, stuff happens, right? (laughs) I'm glad you got that. Okay? But here's the thing. A lot of times, that kind of stuff is designed by God to break up the hard pan and make it usable for His purposes. What looks like stuff gets worked into the fabric of our souls and the story of our life, and we actually become better for it. We would never volunteer to go through it. But once we're out on the other side of it, we can see the wisdom of God and realize, oh, that's what God was doing. Okay, And so sometimes you got to let a little manure happen in your life so that you can see the hand of God. Sometimes the only way we look up is when we're flat on our back. Some of us are really stubborn. Some of us are really obstinate. We've not listened to God. We will not let Him penetrate. He's talked to us over and over again in services. We've heard Him. Nope, not doing it. And then something bad happens. Bam! And we get wiped out. We've lost everything. And we're laying on our back going, I can't do this anymore. I quit. I give up. And that's when God plows in our heart and He begins to turn us into... Good soil, so it can be turned into good soil. Hard soil needs repentance. That's that hook, that plow from the caterpillar coming through and breaking it up. Needs repentance. The fallow ground has to be broken up by the Holy Spirit and allowed to do it. Uh, rocky soil. Uh, in the Midwest, we had a lot of patches of, or fields. We had sandy soil as well, um, and uh, with lots of rocks and. Uh, one of my most loathed jobs as a kid, the job I hated, was picking rocks. Anybody pick rocks in here? Several of us? Yeah. It is the most miserable job. It's almost always hot or raining. One of the two. It never can decide which one it wants to be. And usually how this went is there's an old guy on the tractor. He's got a water jug. And he's got the tractor in low gear going about one to two miles an hour. Right? Right? And then there's like four or five kids and we're on either side of the wagon and we have to pick up rocks and put them on the wagon because the wagon's going to haul the rocks to a pile or to a fence. You see this in, for example, if you've been to New England you, or you've seen pictures of right, those rock wall fences that they built and you think, oh, those are so cool. No, they're not. No, they're not. Because every time I see pictures of those things, I think of some poor kid who had to pick all those rocks to make that fence. That is awful. Okay? What that means is it's miserable ground to work with. And so we developed, like some of us had bags and we dumped the bagels. Other ones would use pitch work and just fling the rocks. I mean, we tried to come up with anything that would make that job easier than what it was. And what made it so miserable is the rule in the field was anything larger than the size of a potato had to go on the wagon. And just know the old guys were watching. All right? So if you let one by, hey, 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 hey. Do your job. Get that rock, right? Now, here's what made it worse. If that wasn't bad enough, here's what made it worse. In the Midwest, you have winter. It freezes 40 below. The frost line goes three to four feet in the ground. Spring comes. The frost comes up through the ground. When the frost comes up through the ground, guess what comes with it? Rocks. So all the rocks you picked last year don't mean anything. Because when you walk out that year after the frost, guess what's back in the field? Rocks. You have to do it again. Have you ever had rocks in your spiritual life and you clean that up and next year comes by and you got more rocks? You're like, I did that. I cooperated with you. Where are these other rocks coming from? Oh my gosh. Am I going to be doing this the rest of my life? And you realize you and the Lord are settling in on a dialogue here. This isn't going away. You're going to go through layers of this. And you're going to get better at it, but you're going to be picking the rocks out of the soil because there's a lot of them. That's what the Bible calls sin. We have a lot of rocks in our soil, and God wants to get rid of them. So it's rocky soil. That frost. All right, the third soil. So you have the rocky soil, and then the third would be the thorns. Thorns in the Midwest were called bull thistles. Okay? We have bull thistles out here, but not like there. Out here, they kind of get like this big, and they're, you know, little thistle things. But in the Midwest, they get big. And so, if you let them go, they would take over an entire field. And bull thistles would get, they could get five to six feet high, and they'd get like four feet wide. And they'd grow not just one, but they'd grow like 20 of them. And so, uh, they were miserable, because every time you whacked them, they'd stick you. Right? They're The Midwest version of a cactus. And, uh, And so those things were terrible. And like I said, if left alone, they would take over a field. They would choke out the crop. And so there were two ways that we normally did this. First, you'd always plow the ground hoping you buried them, which never worked. But when you planted the oats or the wheat, there's just enough room between the rows that you can walk down the rows without damaging the wheat. So you'd walk down the rows and you'd have a really thick pair of gloves and you'd go along and you'd see a, a small bull thistle, You'd grab it by the bottom of the row and you'd pull it out. Fairly easy to do. Problem is, that takes a long time on a 40-acre field. Have you ever walked a 40-acre field doing that? Okay. Here's your job today, son. Oh, whoopee. This is exciting. Bull thistles. Okay. Now the other way you could do it is you just leave them grow. And usually sometimes they would grow in patches so you could see where they were because there'd be all this yellow oats or wheat and then there'd be this big patch of green and you go, yeah. So what we do then is the combine would come through, take a swat out, and it would get really close to where that patch of bull thistles is. And one of the things you did not want to do at any expense was to have the combine combine the bull thistles because if all that seed went into the oats in the bin, when they planted it next year, all you'd have is bull thistles. The crop would be worthless. So you had to miss that where they were. So they'd get really close to it. And then as kids, we'd go in with machetes and shovels and we'd chop that stuff down, throw it. We had a a wagon uh, that we pulled down the tractor, and we throw all that stuff in there, and then the, the combine could come through and get the rest of it. Jesus is talking about how that kind of weed, that kind of thistle, that kind of thorn can choke out the crop. You know, we have that, right? You have thorns in your life, stuff that you've allowed in that shouldn't be part of the kingdom, shouldn't be part of the crop but you've allowed it in. And you it's interesting, we, whatever we start out controlling in the end ends up controlling us. Have you noticed that? If you're over 40, you realize that, okay? And all of a sudden, you look at your life and all you're producing is thistles or blackberries and not much fruit. It's just really easy for that stuff to take over. And Jesus is warning against that. The fourth one is the good soil. Just like good soil is a delight to the farmer, so good hearts are a delight to God. He rejoices in them. Good hearts are those that respond to God. They're workable for Him. And because of His efforts, read here the work of the Holy Spirit, uh, they're productive and bountiful. So let's go over that really quickly. Hard soil has got to be what? Broken up. If you've got a hard heart here this morning, you need to repent. You need to let God, through His Holy Spirit, break up that hard pan. You've got to bust it up. If you've got the rocky soil, what do you need to do? You need to get those rocks out. You have to pick them, all right? Interesting, rocky soil, uh, The rocks are often in sandy soil, and they would do the same thing with the sandy soil that they had to do with the hard pan soils. Remember the hard pan they had to work all the manure in? Same thing with sandy soil. You'd spread the same amount of manure on the sandy soil, and after a while, the sandy soil wasn't sandy anymore. It was organic because the sand was mixed with the manure and turned into really rich so sandy soil can be turned into really good farming soil as, as well. And if you go back to the Midwest, you see all these beautiful farms that are, when I was a kid, there were 40, 60, 80, 120 acres was the largest, but they were just immaculate because the farmers worked them and, and they knew how to work them and they know how to turn marginal soil into good soil. So they became very productive. They became known as, the Midwest is known as the breadbasket of the United States because of the soil that's there. And so if you have sandy soil, it can be turned into good soil. If you have thornish soil, the thorns got to be pulled out. Uh, Often thorns are are attitudes. Uh, For example, one that really cripples us as kind of a bull thistle or a blackberry is bitterness. You ever had one of those things you just won't let go of? You've determined that that is too great of an offense and you're going to hold on to it and it just becomes a big bull thistle in your life. And all it does is prick you every time you think of it. Those things need to be eradicated out, taken out. And then the good soil. The good soil is to be productive and bountiful with God. There's a fifth one. Can I add to this parable just for the heck of it? Okay. There's a fifth one that I thought of here specific to the Northwest. In the Northwest, we have another kind of soil. You know what it's called? Acidic soil. We have very acidic soil in the Northwest. You know why? Because we have what? Evergreen trees, fir trees, all over the place. And they drop those needles, and those needles are everywhere. You ever, ever uh, it rains and you turn your, car sh- your windshield wipers on, right? And there's one needle stuck in the wiper and it streaks it, right? Well, they're everywhere. Well, the thing is, those needles drop and they hit the ground. And when they hit the ground, they turn the ground really acidic. And if you have that, what you have is a lot of moss and grass that can barely survive. It looks like, you know, my hairline. Right, just, just a few strands there. I mean, it's not good. And there's something you can do, though, with acidic soil. And some of us might have an acidic heart this morning. We're just acidic, acidy. We're grumpy. We're curmudgeon. Right? And, we, and if I say to you, what's your joy look like? I don't know what joy is. Right? Yeah. And, and, but something can be done to acidic soil. You can sweeten the soil. And here's how you sweeten the soil. You sweeten the soil, you run to hardware store, wherever, you grab a bag of barn lime. And barn lime, uh, if you take it, you just spread it over your yard and it sweetens the soil, it changes the pH and it makes it so that your grass can grow. So every spring, Abby was laughing at me this morning when she was in first service, and uh, because every spring I get out there and I'll spread barn lime all over my big yard that's about this big, right? And so it looks like I have a white, like I painted the grass white. And my neighbors look at me like, what is wrong with him? What's he doing? But that I know, I usually spread it right before it rains, and I get it spread on there, and then it will rain, and that neutralizes the soil, and the pH changes, and guess what? I have beautiful green grass. Just, my neighbors go, how do you do that? I said, barn lime. Barn what? They're city people. They don't know what barn lime is. But it sweetens the soil, you know? Sometimes we need God to sweeten the pH. It's not we're even sinning. We're just curmudgeonly. We're just grumpy. We're just owly. We're just irritated with everybody around us. Have you, you ever had that? Just he bugs me, she bugs me, that bugs me, everything bugs me. Right? You're just, right? How are you doing? Fine! You know? That kind of thing. Sometimes we just need our, our soul sweetened up. We need some barn lime. Okay. We need the Holy Spirit to sweeten our spirit up. So let's come back to the question this morning. Of those four, five that I just included, which soil would you be this morning as we come to communion? Stop for just a second. Would you bow your heads in prayer and let actually God tell you? Just ask Him, Lord, out of those five, which one would you say I am? And I'm going to give us a period of silence just to let Him talk to you. Ask Him which soil you are. And what do you need from Him before we go to communion? Fathers, we bow before you and look. We know that you can see our heart. and We recognize that you were talking to the disciples about how to have a right heart. And you used the illustration of soils to get the picture across to them. And Lord, we recognize that when we come to communion, communion's meant to sweeten us up. It's meant to remind us. It's meant to make us grateful. It's meant to remind us to honor you. It's a reminder to be focused on your stuff and your kingdom stuff, not just be entertained. And uh, Lord, life's not so much about what we get, but about what we give. And that all can get so twisted around in our culture so quickly. But when we come to communion, it it takes us back to this period where you were on the planet with us and you used that picture of the Last Supper. You used some common elements. You took the bread and said, this is my body, which was broken for you. It was, I took and paid the debt that you couldn't pay yourself so that you could be close to me and you could be saved. Eat this in memory of me. Then the cup is a symbol of the blood that covers that sin, but it's also a symbol of wine. And Jesus said, I will not drink this again until I come back. And so every time we do communion, we're reminded that it's worth taking care of the soil of our heart because he's coming back. He will come back for us. He's coming back to get us. No matter what the world says, He's coming back. It says, Do this in remembrance of me.